and Ubers. I'm a couple of days off heading up to the Southern Great Barrier Reef and getting out for a week of uh, spearfishing aboard the Eastern Voyager with the Adreno team. I'm super looking forward to this. Uh, the gear is slowly being packed. The spear guns have been prepped. I'm, I've been into Adreno Woolengabba today and uh, gotten across it, caught up with my, with uh, good buddies Wayne Judge and Trevor Kitchen. had an absolute ball in the, in the and Jeremy as well. And a uh, cool bunch of people, really cool, really stoked, looking forward to this trip. I thought, what better day could I record an intro for a really cool podcast today? It's Daniel Semrat. He's the owner-operator of the Oregon Freediving Company. He's a freediving instructor, a father, husband, a former science teacher. He holds a couple of records. And above all that, he's just a frothing, super cool, down-to-earth bloke. And uh, I really enjoyed today's episode. We, get, we talk about all sorts of different stuff like... Um, entering the freediving world from scuba diving and just how, it, you know, it can serve as a gateway drug to the freedive spearfishing world. And, uh, yep, cool cool interview today. Before we get there, a couple of quick things. I want to tell you about a couple of reviews I got for 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing, the audiobook. If you go to audible.com forward slash noob spiro, you, you can get this for free as well as a 30-day membership on Audible. Check out 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing, Anonymous says, great tips for hunting and diving. I love listening to this book. Love the Noob Spirit podcast too. I will listen to this again and again. And another anonymous reviewer says, great guide to spearfishing. I wish I knew these tips when starting out. Great refresher and love to support these guys. Well done. Great product. Great podcast. Cool. I love those reviews. And um, also got an email from Michael. He says, hey Shrek, I wanted to let you know I heard your interview on the All Things Wild podcast with Martin Keek. Keto, that guy is from my neck of the woods. I really enjoyed it. There's a bunch I could mention, but I don't want to be too long-winded. I wanted to let you know that one of the highlights to me was hearing about you working in corrections. With social media, it's easy to believe the whole world has it all sorted and is making heaps of money living in some tropical paradise diving every day with massive fish and 100-foot viz. My favourite parts of the interview and also your podcast and Daniel Mann's channel and some others is hearing these little little details and the things I can relate to even though I'm new to the sport in my 40s have a full-time job two young ones to look after and on a great week I dive once miss a couple of fish have six foot of his and I truly love every moment of it um, the wish fulfillment like young bloods etc is fun to watch occasionally I guess but there's a down-to-earth element you bring to the table that I really respect and enjoy kind words and uh, definitely I am not uh, some epic guy diving three times a week uh, I believe the last stretch I had a 10-week dry spell, and um, this week coming up, I'm super excited about it, six days out on the Southern Great Barrier Reef, and it's thanks to patron listeners and uh, people that go to patreon.com forward slash Spiro. but I'm not going to drum on today, too much today, I really want to get into this interview, Daniel Semrad, Oregon Freediving Company, here we go. Today's Noob Spiro podcast is proudly brought to you in partnership with Adreno Spearfishing Supplies. For your next piece of spearfishing equipment, head to adreno.com.au. Flat rate shipping, Australia-wide, huge range of gear. Save $20 on every purchase over $200 when you use the code Noob Spiro. Better yet, drop into their Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne or Perth mega stores. Use the code Noob Spiro to save online or in-store. Check it out, adreno.com.au. Today's Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by Neptonics.com. Neptonics makes solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on, even when you get all limp biscuit on it, you'll struggle to break stuff. <laughs> oh, here we go. 
Yeah, he's ready to rock. It's uh, it's Daniel Samrad. Um, guys, welcome to the New Spirit Podcast today. It, it is Dan, Sam, Dan Samrad the second, actually. I really want. Right. I'm curious about this. Like, welcome all. First of all, from uh, from Portland, Oregon. It's fantastic to have you along. I remember a couple of years ago, I was looking through the podcast stats, and I saw this huge spike um, from people in Portland, Oregon, and I was thinking. Is there something wrong with my stats reporting? Like, what's going on? What are all these people doing in Portland, Oregon, tuning into a free dive spearfishing podcast? But you've got a vibrant community there, and they are uh, they are they are an intelligent bunch by by all reports. Talk, talk to yeah. Me. So I've got to be got to be on my game. Um, but yeah, the community has grown a ton over the last few years, and it's been really fun to kind of be a part of that and watch the community grow and try and support that. Yeah. Awesome. So Daniel Samrad the second. Yeah. So your dad was the first? My dad was the first, supposedly. Okay. Although, yeah. But um, uh, he didn't like Junior. Mm. So I got the second. Nice. Is that like legit in your like birth certificate? Yeah. Oh, it's wow. on It's on all my stuff. And then, you know, when I had my first son, they were like, you know, I could tell he was a little let down that I didn't name him Daniel Samrad the third. But I was like... <laughs> I went, I went through, you know, a life growing up that way. So he doesn't need to. A <laughs> little bit of trivia. My middle name is Brian and my parents were averse to naming, like handing the names on, but it was both of my grandfathers, my maternal and paternal um, grandfather's first name. And uh, so what's your middle name? My middle name is Glenn. Okay. i not sure why, like I had to pause and think about that. Yeah. But sorry about that. Yeah. You're embarrassed about it. No one wants to. I know, I am. But uh, it's awesome to chat with you, Dan. We've been chatting backwards and forwards for a few years. I feel like I I, I almost know you, you know, like, and uh, I, I really like the culture you guys have there and the, the, the culture you've developed around your shop, which is the Oregon Freediving Company. Uh, you're a freediving instructor, but it didn't all start that way. Um, you were a science teacher. Yeah. And a scuba diver. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually, I mean, I grew up always – loving being outdoors and playing in the water and whatnot. Um, and when I was going through college and everything, you know, teaching was one of the first things I thought about and I love science, but then I decided, you know, I needed to be prestigious and make more money and whatnot. So like I started down the road of like, I'm going to be a dentist. Um, and then like kind of got burnt out on that. Like, I like the idea of being Dr. Daniel Semrod II. Oh, I like that. Um, Yep. Right. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, but you know, in all my off time, I was always doing stuff that was like teaching people or helping people or, um, like I was a wakeboard instructor for a while and, and that was always like, I enjoyed that. And so I kind of went back to the teaching route. Um, and then once I finished my master's, I was working with a teacher that happened to be a scuba instructor. And I was like, no way. Cause I didn't grow up like close to the ocean or anything like that. And so like scuba wasn't something real people did. Yeah. Um, and so Jacques I was like, people actually do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I started on the scuba track and was a scuba instructor and everything. Sick. Sick. And so I never had any teachers like you. My teachers were lame. They were not cool and do they didn't do rad at outdoor adventure stuff. I see. No, you, don't be fooled. I tell all my students I'm super lame. 
<laughs> they know it. They know it. I see. I, I read you. You won an award for MIT's um, Excite Award for innovative classroom projects. Like you helped your science teachers earn scuba diving certifications. So clearly, you're quite passionate about helping people. Now I'm concerned. What all did you find? I researched but, you, man. I, I, <laughs> yep, yep, that's true. I um, I enjoy doing doing fun stuff. You know. We'll talk to a little bit about that. Like, um, I've got another mate in New Zealand. His name's Pat Swanson. He's a science teacher as well. And again, I didn't have any cool teachers like you guys at school. I, my teachers were terrible. I I don't know how I even managed to struggle through school, to be honest. So, I mean, talk to us about like what you used to do in the classroom and how you guys, you made young people passionate about the ocean. And I mean, it's already an interesting thing, but to people that are growing up in Portland, Oregon, where you're in temperate, dirty water, um, the ocean's probably not a, a, a big sort of playground to a lot of them. I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining things here. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I do think it was, I was fortunate that I was working with this, this scuba instructor and happened to, you know, right place, right time where I was able to start playing in the ocean. Um, and at the same time, my first teaching job out of, um, out of college was at this private all girls Catholic school in downtown Portland, which was <laughs> kind of funny. But with that, um, you know, there were sort of stipends you could get if you could prove that like, you know, if you showed that it was something you were going to use in the classroom. And so they helped continue my scuba education <laughs> and got me underwater cameras and things like that. So immediately it was like, okay, I need to like pull this stuff into the classroom and, yep. and use it. And I want to get people excited. Cause like you said, a lot of people, you know, see the, the cold Pacific up here and like, yeah, it's pretty on a nice day, but that was enough. And now we're gone. Um, yeah. but they don't get to appreciate, like, I think it's one of the coolest environments. It's still like, you know, cold water, rocky structure, kelp, fish, you know, we've got the biggest octopus in the world. There's lots of really cool stuff um, that's out there if people are want to know about it. Yeah. Ling Cod, um, you've got a monkey face pricklebacks up there. You've got heaps of cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like it too. And But the viz and water temp seems to be a big sort of hindrance. Um, talk to that. No, they're, they're perfect. I mean, it is like the freediving Mecca. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about three feet being a functional day and, you know, eight foot is a pretty decent day as far as viz goes. Yeah. Um, and even this time of year I was out, Oh, it was a few weeks ago now. Um, and, you know, nice day. I thought everything was going to, you know, I was planning on being toasty and happy and um, water temp was 43 Fahrenheit. And I was like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> um, we went out on Monday and it was it was 48. Um, but this was good. So 43. Uh, Fahrenheit for for my southern buddies. Well, actually, let's 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 be honest here. Non US buddies, uh, right. six degrees Celsius. Uh, Forty eight. What do we got there? That sounds really toasty and warm. We got. Uh, I think we're getting close to ten, nine something. Oh well, nine degrees. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. That that's cold. Proper cold. Are you wearing like a five mil, seven mil? What are you doing out there? Uh, seven mil. I wear a seven mil year round pretty much, um, with a few, few exceptions. But, um, you know, when I first started, 
I got a five mil and thought I was tough. You know, there were lots of things when I first started that it was like, looking back, I'm like, man, that was stupid. But, um, well, the biggest thing is like, you got to be able to relax, eh? like to hold your breath. Yeah. And if you're not warm, doesn't matter how, like you can swim around, but then you, you're, you're not really, you're in an aerobic sort of zone and you, you can't slow your heart rate and do all those other cool things that allow us to do what we do. So you have to be warm, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Is that what you're selling in the shop? Yep. Primarily, um, well, yeah, pretty much I only stock seven mils or like a seven top five pant. Um, and then people all the time come in and want a warm water suit and it's like, sorry, don't stock it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, righto. Um, what, what's your summertime temps? Uh, in the water? Mm. Well, so we're in summer right now. Well, and you, so we're you get 43, 48. Tail end. Tail end of summer? Yeah. Wow, and you still got nine degree water. Yeah. Far out. What are you getting, but, in, what are you getting in winter? In the winter, we actually – it seems like we get a, you know, warm current that's a little closer. So we'll be, oftentimes we'll be in the fifties. So it'll, the water will actually be a little warmer, but you know, it'll be gray and raining sideways on you on the top side. <laughs> you really, it's sport. beautiful. You should come out. You're really sport there. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of your skill sets is teaching people freediving and, and I'm imagining a lot of your guys' stuff, because the weather and conditions are so variable there, you spend a lot of time in the swimming pool. Um, Some. That- I teach I teach PFI courses. So on all of the, the courses, you know, we've got a good chunk of classroom, and I always make them, you know, I don't let them get away with just doing e-learning or anything like that. Like, they have to listen to me nerd out on the science and physics and everything else, um, mostly because I like to listen to myself talk. But... Um, <laughs> Then we do have, we have pool time and then we spend a day in open water. Hmm. But for open water, we typically go up to Hood Canal, um, which is about three hours north of here. Okay. So like our, our courses are, are kind of a commitment and it's a lot of work, but it's good fun. Um, and right now Hood Canal is inland water. It's salt water still. Um, but we had a couple courses ago, the surface temp was like 68, which is getting wow. close to, yeah, it's nice and toasty. That I was wearing a 5 mil for and no gloves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 20 degrees C. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm wearing, I'm still wearing a 3 mil sometimes in 20 degrees. Below that, I'm 5 mil all the way. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a funny one though, because as students work deeper, like, you know, everybody's Thermocline. getting, getting too hot and then you hit that thermocline and it smacks you in the face (laughs) yeah yeah and it's awful too isn't it like you're going down everything just clenches up and then yep like if you're starting to approach some depth like that like the you know you're not used to having your your lungs down in residual volume and things like that like that's a that's a whole new experience particularly when you're doing courses i'd imagine yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. buddy protocols and dirty water um with your students, I know you love to teach, particularly Spiros that are learning the freediving side of things. What buddy uh, systems are you got? Are you predominantly teaching them? So, two thoughts there. One is I've been super excited that as the community has grown, um, you know, as as I started, there was. I felt at the time, I felt like there was only, you know, a handful of guys that I could find that, that kind of knew what they were doing and whatnot. Um, and so 
when I started, you know, trained up through instructor and whatnot, um, and when I started running courses, it was always full of guys that wanted to spearfish. Like that was, that was the target. And I think a lot of it probably is, like you said, about our ocean is so inviting um, yep. that, you know, it, it steered away some other, other people that didn't know this was something people did. Um, but recently it's been amazing and a lot of fun that we've had like my course this last weekend, the, the ladies outnumbered the guys. Um, and I've had a lot of people that come in for reasons other than spearfishing now, which is, is funny for the whole time I've been teaching. Um, I would always say, you know, when we're talking about statics and we start with like, why train statics? And I'd say, you know, nobody walks in my door saying statics are my jam, man. Like (laughs) all I want to do is sit still in a pool for as long as I can and hold my breath and suffer through it. Um, And I have a love hate relationship with statics, but the, throughout just this last summer, I've had two students come in that like, statics is what they're all about wow so it's it's been cool to see like that diversity kind of be added to the community um which is fun but back to your actual question um buddy protocols i tell people like if you're not diving on a line nothing replaces a float line so like i'm all about you know the white or high vis float lines and using them whether you're spearfishing or not you know i've got some guys that I trained that were just into photography and use a float line on their camera. So their buddy knows where they are and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. When you're in filthy water, it's kind of like, it's all you got. Yeah. 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 It's the best way I've come up with. Mm -hmm. All right. Statics. Um, Most Spiros just come in and a lot of Spiros actually, even like very well established, knowledgeable Spiros completely dismiss uh, any relevance for statics to spearfishing? You're 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 a proper freediver in your own right, as well as you know coming from a scuba then spearfishing background, but you moved into the 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 technical side of freediving as well. What do you tell people, spearos particularly, about the um, the relevance of statics to, for for spearos? Well, I think that one of for anybody, I think that one of the the big benefits of statics you know there there are a lot of benefits but one of the big ones is mental toughness training um and not just hitting the panic eject button and letting fight or flight take over when something goes sideways like in a static you know all you have to do to feel better is pick up your head and start breathing on a dive you can't do that so if you're already have like ingrained that idea that instead of speeding up, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to relax. I'm going to work through this problem. Um, you know, I think that's a huge benefit. So it allows you to be rational, even though your body is telling you to panic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I tell, I tell all my students, like even on whether it's line diving or, or elsewhere, you know, anytime you feel the need to, and I stole the quote from somebody, I don't even know where it's from, but anytime you've, Anytime you feel the need to speed up, slow down. Was that Kimmy? Yeah, it was Kimmy. One of her um, TED Talks was uh, all about that that very idea. And it's an amazing thing that it's a consistent theme through spearfishing. And uh, like I remember watching it years ago and I just, I've, I've continued to think more and more about that thing. And I, I, I can see your point immediately. Have you got a story that illustrates um, in a spearfishing scenario 
when this lesson sort of um, became more real to you? Um, I've got one that absolutely like I, you know, caught myself getting totally fixated on, on my task. And, um, I was out diving and spearfishing. We were popping scallops at the same time. Um, and so we've got rock scallops and I do do a drop and it wasn't deep. Um, but I see, you know, I see a nice scallop and then, then a couple more. And then from the good old abalone days and whatnot, like you always look around for the other ones that might be around. Right. So, um, I find that not visible initially, there's actually kind of this cave underneath this particular set of rocks. And so I'm looking in there and I'm like, Ooh, that one's bigger. Ooh, that one's bigger. That one's bigger. Before I know it, like I'm, you know, up to my waist in this little tiny cave and like, see the, I swear the biggest scallop of my life. It might be exaggerated now, but I see this massive scallop way bigger than the others. Um, and I'm wedged in there upside down and I'm prying and like every muscle in my body is tense as I'm working, trying to get this off. Um, and you know, the, the first idea of like, I should probably get out of here. And then it's like, no, I'm going to get this scallop. And then it was like, pause, wait a minute. Like, I don't need to drown in 15 feet of water because I'm trying to pry off the scallop. So like, yeah. you know, back out, mark the spot, breathe up, go back. So, yeah. The, the, the point of the story though, is that you got the scallop, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think we're all guilty of it. Like, um, you know, the difference between, I think Spiros and, you know, pure like recreational scuba divers that, I mean, obviously you have scuba Spiros there as well, but, um, you know, pure like there's a touristic type mode and then there's this, there's Spiros where we've got more this hunter-gatherer type orientation and, and I think we are subject to um, putting all of our focus into the activity that we're performing to the detriment of our own safety and well-being sometimes. And I think um, um, just thinking, having that, just not not yeah, not becoming fixated is a, is a, is a massive lesson. Um any, anytime you're in holes, like chasing lobster, scallops, I can see it all always being relevant. Do you guys deal with surge there as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So My Octopus Teacher, uh, the documentary, have you seen it? Um, yeah, it's been on TV while I've been in and out of the room. Okay. I'm wondering <laughs> if that's had an influence on seeing more people in your shop because I'd imagine the ocean conditions – uh, I mean, they're, they're not going to be the same, but it's temperate, uh, not super clean water, octopus and things like that. Um, is the benthos similar? Is that? Do you think that's made any move the needle in any way? I mean, how has it impacted uh, you? Yeah, no, I definitely have a lot of people mention it, um, and with you know Talia, my wife, being from South Africa, um, yeah. it definitely comes off up, and I defer to her, um, but I was super stoked. I got to go to South Africa. Um, we were there actually working with, uh, Derek and Matt and those guys there. Um, and that was right before, like they shut down Europe as a travel hub for COVID and everything else. So we had to scramble to get back, but, um, I was blown away jumping in the water there. And it like, if you take, you know, the, the far away view, um, so many similarities with your rocky structure and your kelp and like, but then if you like zoom in on any one organism, it's like completely different. Yeah, um, wow. and I, I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. 
And Atlantic versus Pacific too. Yeah. We got to dive. Um, Around Cape Town? Yeah. And I'm trying to think where else we dove. Um, when we were working with Matt and Derek, we were in a quarry, so that wasn't quite oh, as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> we did just sneak in some fun dives. Talia so. Davidoff, now your wife, she's an accomplished freediver all of, on her own right. Does she spear as well? Um, I mean, she's got three world records. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, and, she, and her journey started around there as well? Um, yeah. So she initially started free diving there um, and then moved around and her and I actually met in Grand Cayman at a free diving competition um, initially and then cross paths on courses and whatnot later. So, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, 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 a spearfishing romance that spanned continents. That's pretty cool. And she, uh, yeah, I did joke, especially when she first moved here that you know, because she moved to Oregon from Grand Cayman. I was like, it's because the diving in Cayman was rubbish and like <laughs> Oregon's, you know, the, the training mecca. So, <laughs> yeah, that 15 feet of visibility in the, in the, in the case is you can't beat it. Yep. <laughs> cool. You, you own a couple of records yourself. Um, talk, talk about that. Oh, those are boring. Are they? <laughs> the free diving ones or the spearfishing ones? It's funny. Um, the so when I started freediving, um, you know, my initial take on freediving was that it's like stupid dangerous and like I like having air on my back. Um, but if I leave the US, most places I go, you know, it's illegal to shoot on scuba and whatnot. And so I should probably, should probably kind of figure this out. Um, and going into it, I was thought freedivers were crazy and just didn't think my end game was, you know, be able to dive about 40 feet, hold my breath for about a minute, you know, shoot some fish. Um, and then I, I fell down the rabbit hole, but I initially had zero interest in, in competition and, and Talia came from the other side. She started on the competitive side, um, and, you know, added spearfishing later. Uh, but she did finally, I had safety competitions. I had coached at competitions, um, and so she finally convinced me to actually go ahead and compete. And so went down to Florida, did a pool comp. Um, and my biggest goal was to just have fun and not take myself too seriously and have clean performances. Um, and so I was super pumped that I was able to do that and walk away with a couple records that, a couple of CMAS records. So, and I was totally blown away because I wasn't, um, keeping track of, of points at all. And like, to give you an example of like how I, I was in that, that comp, I suppose, um, the one discipline that I expected to actually, like I had done pretty big numbers on before, mm. um, well, I shouldn't say pretty big. I had done numbers I was happy with before, um, was static. But this coming from a guy who has t-shirts at my shop that say static suck and stickers that say static suck. Um, and so I went down there and I held my breath for longer during my warm up for my static than I did in my actual static. <laughs> so I just like threw it away. And so I was blown away. I hadn't been watching points, but I was stoked to get third overall for men. So that's cool. That's okay. Yeah.
If your buddy had a blackout on your next spearfishing trip, think, what would the outcome of that be? Do you know how to revive someone from a blackout? Would you even be in a position to do something about it? Or would you be diving, chasing after a fish as your buddy sinks down to the bottom of the ocean? Do you know where most blackouts happen? Do you know what you can do to minimize your risk of having a blackout? My name is Ted Hardy, and I'm the founder of freedivingsafety.com. In my free online course, you will learn the truth about shallow water blackout, the myth of I don't push myself, I know my limits, I'm in tune with my body, how to minimize your risk of having a blackout, and most importantly, how to save your buddy's life if they have one. Visit freedivingsafety.com to sign up for your free course today. Dive safe out there. It's it's not even that hard. You're spearfishing these days. Like, um, what does that consist of? Do you travel much? Do you, uh, or is it all local? Uh, mostly local stuff. I mean, COVID COVID world's a bit different too. Yeah, it it's been a crazy transition where um, the few years leading up to COVID, I was pretty much out of town as much as I was in town, mm-hmm. um, running courses and whatnot, and then all that shut down right after that South Africa course. Uh, and I loved it. Like, this is terrible for me to say, but like I had to close the shop, um, and I couldn't go anywhere except for the ocean. Um, and so like I had a nice stretch where I was just out there diving all the time and diving for fun, you know, not that, not that classes aren't fun, but diving for myself. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then, now I've, I've been really happy this summer. I've been able to, to get out a bunch. Um, but it, it's all Oregon stuff pretty much. Um, and we've got some guys using jet skis. So we go out on, on jet ski missions and Sick. bounce around. Yeah. You, it's pretty fun. You guys do some blue water stuff up there. You get tuna, tuna. We try to, um, when the stars align, uh, yeah, they, we've been able to get albacore tuna, Okay, cool. In year, years past, um, I'm hoping that it, it lines up again this year. So um, a recent sort of favorite day out spearfishing for you. I mean, walk us through, a, you know, one of your recent favorite days out. Um, yeah, most recent favorite day, um, Monday, I had an epic time. Um, and part of it was, you know, I think – diving with i was diving with dan flood who's uh been a buddy for a long time um he's another instructor here at my shop and he and i hadn't hit the water for fun you know we've been diving we were diving together on sunday for class um but we hadn't gone out spear fishing together for for a fair amount of time because work and life and kids and everything but um we were we took the kayak out and we just got pummeled trying to get through the surf. Like it was brutal. Um, but it was a beautiful day and we were laughing about it and everything else. And we went out and, you know, it was fishy and it was good viz and had a great time. Was so. that a t- tandem kayak? Yeah. Okay. And what, how, how big <laughs> we're was, super cute. We're super uh, cute out how, there on our tandem kayak. How big was the surf? Um, you know, I think it set, <laughs> It wasn't big enough to pummel us as hard as it did. It was us being like too too eager and not waiting for the appropriate time. So how far was the paddle? Like what are you, what are we talking here? An hour? An hour? No, not even. Um, Twenty minutes, maybe. Okay. If that, nah, probably even less than that. It's a short paddle. 
And so you get out. What do you? What sort of structure are you looking for? Have you got? Um, what's the benthos like there? Is there reef everywhere? Is it rocky reef everywhere? Um, it's not everywhere on the the northern Oregon coast. You get big stretches of sandy beach, um, and then rocky points and some rocks. So, but yeah, we're looking for you know rocky rocky structure. Um, We'd love to have kelp, but we've got a big problem with purple urchins and kelp and yeah. everything right now. So, which I'm excited. We're actually working on a project with the Oregon Kelp Alliance to hopefully help improve that. Did you submit a purple urchin recipe for 99 spare recipes? I did not. <laughs> One thing I think people don't realize with those urchin barons too is that the urchin actually get really poor quality, like... um they can survive eating just about nothing, but they don't die and they just stay there in those areas. And then the, they ruin the kelp root systems to my understanding. Is that sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, they're, they're pretty much dormant, you know, um, the Oregon kelp Alliance and a couple other groups got a, a scientific take permit where we've got a couple areas where we can, Cull in place and leave a control and collect data on species we're seeing and whatnot. Um, but through all that, I, I learned a lot about, you know, the urchin just being dormant and empty, which then it made sense why previously our, um, our bag limit on, on purple urchin was 10 a day, mm. which is like, nothing when you're staring at all the rocks just covered with urchin. Um, but, but I'd try and do, you know, and that's still what the regulation is, um, outside of this project, but try and do my due diligence. So there are days where I, you know, I do one drop and pull my 10 urchin and throw them on the kayak or whatever, bring them back and try and open them up. And they're just, it's nothing, you know? So are they, are they good eating? Like if you just, cause I like, like in New Zealand, like you crack open urchin, and it's just this big, thick orange uh, meat. It's it's got a real taste all of its own. But I really like it. Like, um, what's the purple urchin like though to eat? Um, I haven't actually spent a lot of time eating purples, okay. to be honest. Yeah, I've tried, um, but like I said, it's been unproductive. So now what I what I started doing was just taking them, and this probably is bad, but put them in my my fish tank at the shop. Um, and then the, the, it's terrible though. The fish tank turns like black and you can't see through it. Um, but the goldfish like pick the shells all clean. And then I make my little like Etsy projects with the the urchin shell, a little plant and scallop shell on bottom. Ah, No, that's cool. I think, um, oh, so you sell them on Etsy. No, I don't really. Uh, I joke yeah. about it. I, uh, I give them to family and friends. Yeah. I think um, having the purple urchin there in the window is probably a good talking point for teaching people about the issue because um, still having a 10 lim- bag limit sounds ridiculous. That sounds like an unresponsive fisheries management. Yeah. Um, I am excited that, you know, the hopefully this project is showing that, you know, ODFW is responsive. And, you know, I, I do think that, regulation changes should be founded in science. So um, I wish projects would have started sooner, but at least hopefully they're trying to collect data and make changes. Mm. The, the speed of decision-making as well as robust and uh, comprehensive um, stakeholder, like in terms of community um, communication, seems to be uh, an issue even in like 
first world countries. Is that something that you see and think about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things can be frustratingly slow, Mm. (laughs) for sure. I would love it, you know, like if they see a fishery that's vulnerable, um, there could be some fairly fast and vigorous communication and a process that allows for um, at least short-term management strategies and more responsive management strategies. I digress. We're getting lost in the weeds. I'm not an expert on this stuff, but the more I talk and learn about it, it's kind of my gut feel on it. I was just interested in sort of seeing what your take was on that. Yeah, no, I agree. And the, you know, I do, I do wish that a couple of things would have been different as far as, you know, surrounding abalone and kelp issues and and everything else over, over the last number of years. But at the same time, you don't want it all based on anecdotal evidence. That's true. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. And you see this huge disparity in, uh, in these anecdotal takes on things, um, which is, which is hundred percent problematic, which, and it, and it knee jerk reactions from government often tend to not be fruitful long-term. So I hear what you're saying. Um, that was my politically correct response. Yeah, I understood. I understood, and very careful. I can tell that you've been a teacher in a in a in a in a school. <laughs> <laughs> um, hunting techniques. What's a what's a species you really like to hunt in your local uh, Portland waters, and how do you do it effectively? Um, I think our most common kind of prize nearshore species is, is lingcod pretty easily. Um, we've got a limited cabazon season, um, and they're, they're a lot of fun as well. Um, so, but yeah, looking for lingcod is a challenge. It's one of the things that I say, you know, finding the fish is the hard part, not actually harvesting the fish most often. Um, and so, Look, knowing where to look is one of the first things and, and training your brain to pick out the patterns, you know, visualizing the fish and looking at pictures, watching videos, all that, all that fun stuff really helps. Um, but actually slowing down enough to, to see what you're looking at, um, I think is, is pretty important. I look, um, some of the Northern California or even the central California guys and, they are hunting by torch in these these caves and the water's quite dirty and I can't even see what they're looking at before they shoot it and pull it out of the hole in the GoPro footage. Um, it can be tough. Um, I'm imagining in person it's even tougher. I think in person it's easier. Like I don't think it always translates. Um, and there is an interesting – I've had – somebody tell me I'm, I'm colorblind. And I had somebody tell me that they think that that probably helps me pick out patterns, which I have no idea how valid that is or not, but, um, it, it's absolutely true. Like you watch the video and it's not until the fish starts moving like cabazon, I feel like are, are worse for that. Like when I started scuba diving, I never saw cabazon unless I laid on them and they like, they won't spook until you're like right on them. And so I'd get like thumped in the chest because I lay on this fish oh, and it wow. like bumps me in the chest. And then they, they got like this super fast little sprint away. Um, and it's like, Oh, that's at least what a cabazon tail looks like. Um, 
And so, you know, it took a while to be able to actually see them and find them and know where to look for them. So what are you looking for? Signaling like, um, like, uh, are we looking for a specific type of kelp or weed on the bottom, other species like of invertebrates or what, what, what's, um, what are your telltales? Sometimes um, it's a lot. Sorry. Sometimes I think the pattern recognition is just purely done on intuition and, and not any conscious mechanisms and experience. Just guys just dive at the right time and they don't even really consciously understand what it is that is making them want to dive at that time. Yeah. No, I've talked numerous times about like my, my perfect dives when I like reflect, you know, I'm on the surface and whatever, whatever just happened, like I'm trying to digest it and realizing that I feel like when I was underwater, I didn't necessarily have like a conscious thought, like the internal dialogue was turned off and it wasn't like, you know, necessarily consciously deliberately thinking about things like I do topside. Um, but definitely as far as, you know, finding, Lingcod, oftentimes um, we are looking in, in holes, like you said. Um, they will, it's, it's funny, you can find them out in the open as well. Um, and oftentimes I think the ones out in the open are, are lighter than the ones you find in holes because they're the ones out hunting where the ones in holes are sitting digesting their food. Um, but the cabazon, so like on Monday, I got a, a nice cabazon and I was covering ground because at this spot I seem to be able to find them like sitting on top of structure um or like you know right in the corner of a rock or something um and I was just kind of cruising covering ground and I was towards the end of my dive and just you know on the edge of my visibility I saw I couldn't even make out the fish but I saw this oval and the pattern I was like that's a cabazon um and so I, I threw my pole spear down. I didn't even like swim up to actually check it out. Cause I was like, that's probably what I'm going to take. So I, I put my pole spear down to market, went and breathed up, um, you know, came back down and, and then went up and slowly approached the fish. And sure enough, it was a good cabazon. Wow. So that style of diving, that sort of that scouting where you just like, I'm guessing you just bomb dive at the bottom or you maybe midwater even or a couple of meters off the bottom and you're just cruising along scouting ground. When you find something that gives you, you, you your spidey senses, senses start tingling, you you drop your gun, then you mark the spot, then you head up, relax, breathe up, have a proper relax and then you head down and then that's when you start hunting. Is that kind of typical? Yeah, yeah. I'd say, you know, day to day it, it it kind of varies. And even throughout the day where sometimes, like you said, we are covering a lot of ground. Um, other times I'll spend a whole drop or even two or three drops just looking in like, you know, if it's a big cave, we're looking at trying to check every corner in the back and whatnot. So sometimes it's super slow. Sometimes it's, it's pretty fast, but it is definitely more active than a lot of, you know, sit and wait, which I told you that I I don't love statics. I also don't like espeto hunting. Oh wow! Well. <laughs> so, it's well. not my favorite. So the temperate water hunting probably suits your style and personality. I do. Yeah, I think you know some of my favorite diving is here in the Northwest. Like there are spots on the Southern Oregon coast that I would say are all time for me, and and Northern California. So because I've read you. You have done a bit of hunting like in Hawaii in super clean water, chasing like those, you know, those pain in the ass fish that just 
they just demand that you hold bottom time and you know like you know just be super patient um but that's not you don't you don't it's not your choice well see hawaii and warm water i don't i don't mind i enjoy on that i enjoy that you can kind of play games with fish and try and you know once i started learning you you can do certain things to try and get fish closer or whatever um i started enjoying those types of games um one like hunting that i was like never again and i you know i'm sorry to anybody who like this is their favorite <laughs> thing we went up we went up to alaska looking for chinook and we were diving super shallow like muddy water um and like just sitting on the bottom holding your breath in cold water that you can't see for a long long time and hoping this fish swims in front of you wasn't my favorite style of hunting what is a chinook i'm looking it up uh king salmon okay all right cool is that just a a, a sort of a local name for him um i'm not sure i always learned him as chinook i learned him as kings later so. Okay, androgynous fish native to the North Pacific Ocean and river systems of Western North America. Ah, interesting. Okay, cool. And and so super dirty water. Are you getting them on a migration? Uh, yeah. So that I mean, that trip was a lot of fun. That was my first trip to Alaska. But um, when I, yeah, when I go back, I would rather shoot halibut and things like that but um yeah the idea was to you know hit them on their their run before they're in freshwater kind of at a a terminal fishery and it was interesting on that particular trip like because of their their numbers you know all of our intel had pointed us to like this game plan um and then they closed that area like a day before we got there. Oh, and so then yeah. that, that all went out the window and it was like trying to start from scratch. So, ah. but it was good. That's a good, um, it points to a lesson to have a plan B too when you do plan these sort of these long ranging trips too, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Gear. I, I wanted to revisit gear for your local hunting for Lincod and Cabazon. Um, you mentioned having a pole spear. Is that typical for you? Um, I go back and forth. I, you know, if I'm, I still think of spearfishing as harvesting a lot. Um, and so there are times I really enjoy and talk about, you know, teaching environmental science and whatever else I'm all about, you know, taking small stringers and just what you need and whatever else. Um, that being said, if my freezer's empty, I'm happy to shoot my limit and, you know, restock. Yep. And so um, when when the freezer's full, uh, I do like taking out a pole spear. I think it adds a, a nice element to it. Um, and like I said, these fish, you can swim up and bare hand sometimes. So um, yep. adding a pole spear, I, I like. Makes it more sportsman-like. Yeah, a little bit. At least it makes me feel that way, if it, whether or not it's true. Um, but I still do take out my spear gun fairly frequently. Okay, cool. And, uh, I mean, Chinook's salmon made me think looks like a fish that would smoke well. Um, yeah. Do you guys like smoking fish there? Yeah, absolutely. Right, cool. Smoked salmon is like candy. Yeah, 100%. Um, 
a lot of fatty fish too. Uh, I don't know. I seem to like them in there. Um, have you got a smoker yourself? I do. I'm terrible at it. Yeah. But um, I want to get better. <laughs> Walk us through what you do when you're smoking. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Are you using like a metho like smoker, or is it? Have you got a bit more of a like a gas setup, or? You know, it's uh, so it's an electric smoker. Um, but I really am a total hack at this point. Like right. I legitimately <laughs> have no tips on that front. You need to listen to uh, Michael from Medicana Smokehouse interview. Like he's uh, he's got a smokehouse in New Zealand. Jeep is that guy loves to smoke fish. Um, nice. I'm hoping to get a section from him about in 99 Spiro recipes. I still haven't got it yet, but um, just about like how to smoke fish because I think um, – it's, a, it's just a, a method of cooking that lends really well to a lot of species of fish. And I love smoked fish. Yeah. I freaking love it. Brown sugar. I had, you can't go wrong with brown sugar. It's right. Salt. Absolutely. That's actually my, uh, my goal over the next couple of days was I was going to play around with a few recipes because I haven't, I haven't tried anything in a while. So Cool. All right. Well, let us know how you go. Send us, send us. If you've managed to do a really good job, I'd love to see some, uh, some photos and a bit of a story. That'd be cool. Perfect. When I mangle it, I'll send you one of those too. <laughs> I love it. The lessons learned are the best. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes when, when you've been doing something for a long period of time, you've almost forgotten all the steps of learning. But when you um, are just have just freshly bungled something, it's like you're the best person to teach others. So, um, oh, good. What about scary stuff, man? Like you mentioned your, you know, like that bit where you had to sort of slow down and just get rational with chasing scallops and holes. Um, what else, man? What, what's, um, have you had any close calls near misses? Um, yes, the, I usually am, you know, pretty, pretty cautious, pretty well thought out. Um, but at the same time, things always go sideways and usually it's, you know, ego or arrogance that, that helps lead to that. Um, you know, one of the, one of the trips that, could have been bad was again, a, a kayak mission and, um, coming in, we were going through, it was winter in Oregon, but we hadn't been out in a while. And it was like, yeah, I think we could do that, you know, and we're, we're eager to go out. And so we go out and we're not necessarily paying attention to conditions like we should. Um, and on the way in, it was a little, a little worse than on the way out. Um, and so I was paddling, you know, we get up to kind of the surf zone um, and I'm hanging just on the back and my buddy goes in first and he rolls in yard sails. Um, and, but everything's okay. He's got it all tied to the boat and whatnot. And I had my, my fins off at this point um, and they're just kind of like shoved under the seat, but not actually tied to anything. Mm-hmm. I still had my weights on, my neck weight and my, my weight belt. Um, and so once like he's under control, I, I paddle in close to where he is and it looks like he's touching. And I'm like, sweet, if he can touch here, I'm just going to hop out and like walk this thing in. Right. Um, and so I was like, Hey, are you touching? He's like, yeah, yep. Yeah. And he thought I asked, Hey, are you okay? And so I hop out with my weights on and no fins on. Oh, um, <laughs> and then I'm wrestling this boat. So then I end up rolling my boat. Um, I lost a set of carbon fins. Uh, it was like the second set of carbon fins I'd ever had. Oh. Um, 
And, you know, the typical story of it wasn't until kind of after the fact, and I'm just like completely gassed. And I think that, you know, my kayak is going to get smashed on these rocks that are on the, the north side there and everything else. But get that in. And I thought about getting the fins. It's like, no, no piece of gear is worth my life. And, um, you know, hindsight, I'd always be willing to get rid of your weight belt, you know, make things easier in that sort of situation. But yeah, far out, man. Weights. It's a huge thing. Um, you used an interesting turn of phrase. You said like your friend went in first, he rolled, rolled his kayak and then yards, yards out. <laughs> I'm assuming it's like a, like a picture of just all his shit just in the water everywhere. But you, have you got a line like looping it all through and connected back to the kayak? Yeah, I've gotten on a kayak, but you done, um, rod holders and things like that so you can tie tie everything to the boat is the ideal okay and weights is that typical to leave your weights on until you're inshore or have you got another strategy you use now um what i do now is i take off because i dive with both a neck weight and a weight belt and so I take off my neck weight because it's not quick release anyway. And I clip it on the, the bottom frame of my seat. Um, and I typically still wear my weight belt in when I paddle in, but I'm only wearing half my lead at that point. So I've only got like five pounds on in a seven mil suit. Okay, cool. And it's quick release if I needed to get rid of it. So that set of fins, um, that, that was an expensive lesson as well as a um, scary one. Yeah, yeah. Anything else learned from that? Um, <laughs> I suppose, you know, it's always good to have a reminder to respect the ocean and remember to be humble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep an eye on topside conditions even when you're diving. Yeah. So. Conditions can change too, like you say, like um, an incoming and an outgoing tide are two different things. The wind can pick up, swell can pick up, um, all of those things as well. So it's... Uh, yeah, the ocean's always an intimidating place, I think. Hey Shrek, Jeremy here, man. I'm back. Just wanted to say the podcast is growing from strength to strength, my friend. Hoorah, man. I just wanted to say thank you for your uh, continued support from the Noob Sparrow listeners, subscribing, reading riding and submitting kick-ass spearfishing adventures from all over the planet. Your list is kick-ass and Shrek, my friend, so do you. All you guys, come check out the next edition of Spearing Magazine at spearingmagazine.com. Jeremy out. Are you in the market for a new spear gun? Killshot Spear Guns has got blue water wahoo tuna guns, open track spear guns, enclosed track spear guns rear handle enclosed tracks check them out at killshotspearguns.com even better i've got some good news for you you can save 30 dollars on any killshot spear gun at killshotspearguns.com use the code noob if you're in store just say crikey mate or say shrek from the noob sparrow sent you and you'll save 30 dollars ed martin at killshotspearguns.com check them out Obstacles in your freediving, spearfishing, scuba diving journey, like um, we, we, we sort of, we went, we went from, you know, 
where you started all the way through with that early mention. I mean, what did you struggle with? Um, you know, one of the challenges I would say is locally, you know, especially during, during the winter time, the ocean can be pretty gnarly. Um, and so there are lots of days where you're just not getting in. Um, and that can be extended stretches. You know, I'm two hours away from the nearest point on the coast. Um, so just logistics of getting out, getting back and having a day, you know, with good conditions, um, sometimes can be a big challenge. Um, once I started really teaching and running travel courses, it was interesting because I was always like, I slammed my schedule where I was never diving for, you know, spearfishing and what, what really kind of, you know, what I saw as my, my fun me time, um, you know, cause it was always, you know, almost let free diving just become work, um, yeah. which I'm glad I, I scaled back and didn't allow that to happen. So, um, I've got two questions I want to ask you. Um, I'm going to go to the one that interests me probably the most is um, that delicate balance um, when you start to do freediving spearfishing as a job, whether it's a shop or whether it's, you know, doing courses. Um, you know, you're never going to make a fortune and uh, in, in like t- teaching. What? How dare you? <laughs> teaching spearfishing and freediving. And, 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 you know, like you, you have responsibilities, like financial responsibilities in terms of family and stuff. Um, so you're always, you know, you're wanting to provide and then sometimes your life just gets out of balance. And, I mean, when spearfishing or freediving is just work and, you, and you're not um, enjoying it as much as you can, um, how, how do you know what's your trigger for that, that, that point in time and, and what's your damage control? Um, so I think, I mean, I definitely went <laughs> to that, to that point with, uh, you know, always being teaching, always being traveling and teaching, which adds another, you know, stress and logistic element. Um, and, got to the point where, you know, I realized like I'm getting frustrated with interactions that, you know, I'm not necessarily as excited about diving as I want to be. Um, and just not enjoying things as much as I should be. So, um, for me, that was a big, like scale back, uh, and, and refocus, which, um, you know, I've made made a couple transitions where I shifted the focus more on my shop, my community, um, you know, and then uh, it was, again, it's hard to say it was nice when COVID hit, but when COVID hit, that totally like forced, you know, me to, like, I couldn't do anything else. So yeah. I was out diving for fun all the time. So. Yeah, cool. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I love getting out diving. And um, I have long patches of time where uh, I just work and um, and I, I love, you know, the podcast and I love talking to people. I love spearfishing, you know. So for me, it's a it's a really good fit. But I'll be honest, if I don't go spearfishing for, you know, uh, a month, I start to hang out. And recently I had 10 weeks, no diving. And then I got out diving and I was pathetic. Like my um, my dive reflex was just dead. And it felt like starting from square one and it was so frustrating. And I and I deal with it fairly often now. It seems like I, I, I just have these long dry spells. And 
even though people think, oh, you live in you know subtropical Queensland, like getting out logistically with family responsibilities, work, and and things like that, like it's it's tough at times. And I am starting to to uh, well, I'm doing my instructors next month, and um, I want to start integrating more of teaching into my lifestyle. But I know that teaching is different than just going spearfishing. And uh, so, I mean, these questions to you come from me, like wanting to ask you and pick your brain about it. Um, the other way I wanted to ask you about planning trips, uh, you said like your coastline. Well, actually, do you mind if I comment on that uh, last go, statement? Go, for sure. Um, you know, I think that's one where oftentimes I feel like whether it's that I haven't been in the water or like the type of diving that I do shifts, you know, I, I get opportunity to do a different type of diving or, you know, go spear fishing. And when your dives aren't going, how you're like, I'm a better diver than this, you know, um, it's really frustrating. It's really hard. Like I have to remind myself that like be okay with whatever, wherever your dives are that day. Um, yeah. and not force a dive. So. Yeah, no, nah, it's, 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 it's just a good reality check. I, 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 you know, like I have the benefit of being a bit older now too, so I'm able to look on it a bit more like that. But um, 10 years ago, I think it would have been a different thing for me. Um, you mentioned like your coastline's two hours away. Planning that logistically is difficult. You also do trips north for your courses. Um, understanding weather and conditions are a huge part of spearfishing, particularly if you're shore diving, um, and understanding or, or having an a good estimate of what visibility is going to be like and things like that. Um, because if you travel two hours, you want to dive. Uh, I know that it's not a reality, but you probably want better than 50-50 odds to make that trip, particularly as it's opportunity cost. Like you could be doing something else with your time. How, what have you learned in order to predict good diving conditions so that you, you know it's you – know well, you have a good expectation that it's going to be worth your time? So – my favorite way to predict that is to talk to any one of the guys in the community who is out, you know, the day before, um, I think is, is the most reliable, you know, check wind and surf and whatnot, but at least here in Oregon, I haven't found a reliable way to predict visibility, um, which is frustrating. Um, and it's, it's funny where we have, days where we'll go out and dive certain spots and as we move around to different zones like visibility is trash everywhere but it's trash for different reasons like yeah. <laughs> here there's a big pocket of krill and here it's just split pea soup and here there's all this stirred up vegetation like um so you know i haven't found the answer it's still a bit of a guessing game unless you've got a good report yeah i'd love to a general rule of thumb is you know winter time we get clearer water um, summertime it's split pea soup pretty consistently, but, um, you know, it, it's calm and mellow in the summer and it's 20 foot in the winter. So, so a lot of your issues are particulate in the water. So it's either a swell issue or is it a wind issue or is it, uh, it's microorganisms or you get all of it? Yes. Okay. Um, we, yeah, we do get, it depends on, on the type of diving. Cause you can find, you know, if you're just walking in off the shore, I'm not particularly worried about wind as far as the day's conditions. Um, but if we're going out on a kayak or something like that, then check in wind. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I would love to get uh, someone that specializes in, uh, in particularly ocean 
conditions and someone that can talk about visibility. I think um, I think there's a lot of learning there. I don't think it stops. Like um, there's so much about the ocean and oceanic weather that um, it's just mystifying. And I think you can study it for your whole life. Have you ever kept a dive log, like a, a, a Spiro log? Like I've got one, we've got one on Amazon that just teaches guys to um, ride in there. I mean, when you do scuba diving, you do a dive log. But when you go spearfishing, most of us never do a dive log. However, if you really want to understand like weather and conditions and how they relate to visibility and how fishy things are and things like that, I think it's a really good exercise to do. Have you ever done that? And, and what have you learned from it? If so. Um, I've never been disciplined with it. I really like the idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just another thing to do, isn't it? Sometimes on a big dive day. Yeah. 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 I do love, you know, I do look at, um, the data from my dives. Um, but as far as actually, you know, I've gone through phases where I've jotted down notes after dive days, but, um, you know, ultimately that drops off, but I love that my dive watch will drop everything to my phone. And so, you know, I can look at my dive profiles. I can check my depths. I can look at temperature, all that fun stuff. I can, Mark secret spots. Um, another interesting thing I learned about you was you you train a fair bit in the gym, and you as I believe you might have some back health issues. Is that true? And and uh, and and how does that sort of tie in with spirit? Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. So I I do a bit when I wasn't diving as much. See, this is another thing that. I'd never thought I would enjoy, but when I wasn't diving as much, um, I started running just to stay in shape. Um, and then my distances got further and further. And so like, I never thought that like, you know, a 10 K would be like my comfortable cruisy, like, yeah, let's go do this, you know, multiple times a week and, and have fun with it. Um, but I did find like, Diving gives me a chance to like switch off that internal dialogue and running far enough gives me a chance to do the same thing. So oh, well. I found it to be kind of a, a recharging, you know, um, a, a de-stressor for me. So I really enjoy that. Um, and then on gym kind of stuff, I do a bit mostly cause I've got a teacher buddy that bugs me to do that. And then if I am training for, you know, whether throughout my progression, if I was training for, um, you know, next steps on instructor or, a, you know, our advanced course or something like that, or the Florida comp, then I'd get more serious and cater it just to free diving type performance. So you do cross training for spearfishing in the gym and does, does the running for that as well, or is it just purely just for running? It's, it's completely pretty much just for overall fitness. Yeah. Okay. All right. What, so. what cross training in the gym has been relevant for spearing in your opinion and, and freediving? Well, I do some things that are absolutely miserable. Um, and I don't recommend them. Um, and I don't, I don't do them regularly. Like for my daily diving, I don't do them. But if I'm going on, like I said, if I've got a a trip or something, then I'll I'll add these things in. But one of the things that I think is important, especially in cold water with a thick suit, you know, flexibility um, is important. Diaphragm flexibility, lung flexibility. So um, 
doing your stretches. And then I also have some workouts that I do that you're holding your breath while you're, while you're being active and increasing CO2 tolerance, hypothetically. Um, but yeah. Hypoxic squats. Um, I do, uh, metabolic ladders. So where you're doing like, you know, up to 10 reps back down and you get to breathe as many reps as you did. Um, and so like one day is squat press. Um, another day is kettlebell swings. Another day is, uh, burpees. Okay. Are doing awful. Even doing burpees is miserable while you're holding oh, your breath. They're miserable when you don't hold your breath. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. They're a tough exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, Cool. It's it's it's. I, I know you've geeked out on the free diving side of things as well. So it's partly what triggered some of my questions. But um, I th- I've noticed that any sort of dry training regime, whether it's um, doing tables or it's in the gym or whatever, they they se- they all seem incredibly hard to maintain over time. It's something that you might do for a specific period of time for a specific reason. Is that sort of your um, opinion on it too? Or, um, I mean, that's how I approach those which i think are are kind of extreme one thing that i intend to be better at um and i think relates to everybody's daily and it's super easier doing like your diaphragm stretches um and i think that's going to benefit everybody they can be a bit you can like diaphragm stretches are a little bit of a like i don't know you, you do get sort of drummed into the risk of expansion injuries and stuff, like particularly when you just start in a hold and do stretches and stuff. Have you got any training resources that you would recommend just so people don't go out and hurt themselves trying to do it? I do. I mean, no. And I always caution people against, uh, you know, unfortunately it's hard to filter out like the information that you get online. I say on, on something that's going to be information online, but, um, you know, when I, when I teach them in courses, we always talk about being super gentle with yourself and we talk about the risks associated and it shouldn't be intense like, you know, a, a hamstring stretch or something like that. That's not what you're going for. Yep. Yeah. So okay. very gentle, very progressive. All right. All right. Interesting. Yoga, is that something you do as well? You're like picking on all these things that I think are great habits that I don't stick to. Um, <laughs> what have I got so far? There was smoking fish, like cross training. <laughs> um, yoga, you, you brought up uh, my, my aching back because I'm an old man. Yeah. And actually when I was regularly doing yoga was like when my back felt the best. Um, and then you get busy. What sort of yoga do you do and how do you get into it? I do hot yoga. No, just kidding. Um, I want to do hot yoga. I like like saunas, but I just can't take doing anything physical when I'm doing it. Yeah. At this moment, I'm not doing anything yoga wise. I started doing stuff uh, on, on YouTube and there's this great guy called Sean Veig who does these beginner men's routines and, uh, and I can just do them in my jocks at home. I just, pull the couch out. I've got a yoga mat. There's no way I'm going to a class uh, in front of predominantly females and just looking like a beached whale. Um, so Sean V on YouTube's my go-to. Nice. Yeah. That's what I figured if I got like a whole stock of yoga pants for me to wear, then I'd feel guilty enough that I'd have to go to class, but it hasn't worked. <laughs> 
<laughs> At least you're in decent shape, though, far out. Um, uh, I don't really have a whole bunch of yoga pants. <laughs> One other thing I, I've I've, met, I've seen around too is like, um, you know, like hate for spearfishing is something that we encounter, uh, particularly if we deal with people outside the spearfishing world. Um, or just people that criticise or don't have an understanding of what it is we do. What's probably one of the most common criticisms you hear of spearfishing or people's, you know, mistaken perspectives and, and how do you sort of respond to it? Um, I have encountered that in the past, um, you know, in person even, and I always try to engage people in conversation in a non-confrontational way. Um, and, you know, I've had a bunch of students and friends who vegans and every, every walk of life and, you know, have the conversation that I enjoy seafood. And I think that the most sustainable, the most responsible way for me to enjoy seafood is to go harvest it myself. But there's zero bycatch. I know exactly what I'm taking. You know, I'm in control. Um, you know, one, if you, if you eat seafood that's caught commercially, like, We've got mislabeled fish, we've got bycatch, we've got all sorts of things. So, um, you know, I try and try and talk from that side. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah, it's always, it's always, they're always interesting conversations. Sometimes I think we forget to give people kind of the, the grace. It's like you, you deal with uh, open hostility or, or, or criticism towards something. It's very hard to just stay cool about it and just not be confrontational. So, Ah, it's cool to hear your take on it. I was going to say that there's another kind of slight, uh, I shouldn't say division, but another one that I try and encourage both communities to like just have a conversation and not like stay stupid stuff um, is between scuba sparrows and freedive sparrows um, since we've got both over here. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to be delicate. I think – People from pure freedive spearfishing um, backgrounds, like or, or, or like areas where there's there's no, it's illegal to um, scuba spear. It's very easy to dismiss it, and I, I've been guilty of it. You know, we quite often call um, scuba divers bubble blowers, but I started yeah. off um, scuba diving myself. That was the, my gateway drug into the freedive, you know, spearing world. And so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough one, but um, it's a cultural thing too, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, my take, because I entered freediving from that side, and I remember, you know, being offended by freedivers who were jerks, um, but you're going to, the old catch more flies with honey, like if, you, if you're nice to them and have a conversation, um, you're probably going to get further than if you're just like, you know, tearing them a new one. Yeah. I think a lot of um, freediving sparrows are not really evangelists for the for the lifestyle of spearing either they don't really care or want other people to do it so yeah that's true that's probably a part of it as well um what about funny stuff um specifically out spearing if, if or yeah i mean you run a freediving shop as well i'm sure funny shit happens all the time one of my let's see i'm gonna check here because i think it's still the the picture i use on the the shop instagram but um the and it always makes me laugh so yeah okay perfect so the the profile pic is um me with a, a tuna on my back um and the entire reason that picture exists is because that day like 
right at the beginning of the day, um, you know, first time pitching off the boat, I sat right on the boat cleat and I pitched off the back and like immediately felt myself just hang up and then tear free. And so I had this giant hole in the seat of my wetsuit through both layers. And so that picture has been cropped where you can't see that anymore. Um, But if you see the full picture, it's it's a little more revealing. So... (laughs) That's a, kept diving all day. It was just, you know, well ventilated. Fire out. You would have been fresh. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I've heard about guys getting hung up on boats by the, you know, like the, the the cleats on the on the on the bottom of their wetsuit top and stuff like that, and almost drowning and stuff like that. It's like one of those ones you don't even think about, but like you can see how it could happen. Yeah. It it taught me, you know, that was kind of that first year that we were running offshore and really kind of my, my start of pitching off a boat like that. So, um, it taught me that lesson real quick. <laughs> now I pay attention to where boat cleats are. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Um, you dive back, Dan, uh, give us all your biases with equipment. What are you using head to toe for Oregon diving? You, want make some models, make everything. Some models, do it. All right. So, um, my favorite suit for a long time has been from Omer. Uh, so I like their stone suits. I've used that both in instructing and, and spearfishing. Um, the, so it's a see, seven, seven mil two piece Omer stone suit. Yeah. So they've got a few different colors. Um, but I, I use their, you know, their three mil in the pool, five mil, um, various trips or like our tuna trip, the water's warmer. So wear a five mil for that. Um, seven mil for day to day near shore stuff. And longevity out of a seven mil suit for most of your spear. And what do you, how many seasons are you getting out of it? Um, I think I go through my suits faster than most. Um, but you should be able to get a couple years out of them. Okay, cool. cool. Pretty easy. Um, booties and gloves. Booties and gloves. I wear Argos four mil socks and, um, I like the Argos gloves, but they're, they're like a two mil. They're, they're pretty bulletproof. Like I've been impressed with how durable they are. Um, but just a little bit cold. Like I had one day where I spent more time in the water than I probably should have. And I got out and, you know, I'm driving like no dexterity (laughs) and I get out at the convenience store to grab, you know, caffeine and and junk food for the drive home and i can't get my wallet out of my pocket i actually had to ask somebody to like get my wallet out of my pocket for me because my hands just weren't working yeah. um so, you need so now, now i use a, a thicker glove so i like the uh there's a glove from siak called the ultraflex yep um fits my hand really well so i use a 3.5 when i'm spearfishing five mil when i'm in class usually if it's cold um, let's see, fins for a long time. I use the Moana hybrids with yep. Stingray short pockets on them. Yep. Um, although recently I went back and like cycled through all my fins. So it's been using a bunch of different fins just to play around and figure out what I want to get next. So. so those Moana watermans that made in Hawaii, are they still going strong? They are so headhunter acquired them. Okay. So now I think they're in Florida. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. So cool. Um 
Are you do do you yeah. get married? Do you get married to gear like to brands and specific items, or do you still experiment? No, I think it's some items. I'd say yeah. Um, other items, I well even on even on the ones that I'm loyal to, I think it's because I'm talking to students and I have the shop, like I'm always trying new gear. Um, but you know, if it's a, if it's a good day and I'm diving for myself, like I've got my go-tos. So what I'm listing off is kind of my go-tos. Um, but I do play around with, you know, new toys fairly frequently. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So, yeah. So for my computer, I use a Garmin, um, Descent just upgraded to the yeah Descent Mark II oh, now. Um, yeah. I'm jealous. Ran the, the Mark One for quite a while, um, and then I also use the the Cinto D4F. Like when I'm teaching, that's still one of my favorites because of the apnea timer on it and whatnot. But um, use a homemade neck weight and thick rubber weight belt from XS Scuba. Actually, um, what's your Marseille buckle? What's your distribution percent wise? What I mean, what what have you got on your neck, and what have you got on your waist? Uh, we always say no more than fifty percent on your neck, and on top of that, I say no more than five pounds because um, out here some guys wear a lot of lead, um, it, and appropriately wear a lot yeah, of lead. Yeah. Um, but I wear with a seven mil suit. I typically only need ten to eleven pounds, um, so right. I do five on my neck, and then. Five or six on my belt puts me neutral at ten. You'd be you'd be a lot lighter lead wise than some of your local guys, though. I'm imagining. A yeah, lot, a lot of suit. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. Spear gun. Spear gun. Um, my go-to is the Omer Invictus HF seventy-five. Okay. Um, the other one that I grab is the Meandros B28. Okay. All right. And Pole spear, I use the Headhunter Nomad. Ah, yep. I got a pretty good rip. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's big and it's heavy, but I'm shooting at fish that are pretty thick <laughs> yep, yep. in the dome, you know. Um, they've got a solid skull, so. Need some punch power as well. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be necessarily super fast, but needs needs some power behind it. Um, shoot, uh, sorry. Uh, what's your shooting line preference these days? Are you a mono man or are you Dyneema or? I'm a mono guy. Um, so yeah, I rig, uh, single wrap of mono. Okay, cool. And just like seven mil shafts there, or I mean, what's that in, uh, uh, Imperial? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd have to, I don't actually nerd out on a lot of my gear very much. Um, so it's a five eights, isn't it? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, I don't, I can go grab one and look at the specs on it. If you want, uh, I think the, I think the Omer actually is a little lighter than a seven mil. Okay. All right. Cool. So. Cool. All right. Um, what about, um, buoys and, uh, and float lines or rig lines? Yeah. So the float lines, I love the white lines from Gannett. Yep. Um, and, um, he actually, made me some marker lines because we don't really need like a fighting line for our, yep. you know, daily stuff. Um, and so I'm hoping he'll actually make those where I can stock them and not just show off my cool new toy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, on a float, I like 
we use the the Rob Allen hard floats. Um, also use like the the Banks board or the Gannett board. Yep. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I like to hunt in a team of three often. Uh, and so we'll have you know one board where we've got accessories and spares on whatever we need um and then the other other two people will have a kelp carrot or kelp snake and that way we're not just fouling our lines all day um so that's typically how i run it and then we draw straws for who has to drag the big board um and fight that all day (laughs) oh good fun it's good fun it's good when you've got a good team and people you can rely on eh like um do you teach a lot of etiquette to people in your courses, particularly Spiros? I try to. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, I have a whole section on good Betty etiquette. Um, cool. and it was funny. I <laughs> went out with, you know, I'm, I am spoiled with some of the, some of the crew that I, I get to go out with, you know, the instructor team or, or some of the other guys that I've been diving with for a long time and buddy confidence and just knowing how each other operate and like pulling slack on float lines and just all the little pieces, you know, that, that make it such a smoother day. Um, you know, you go, I went out with somebody who is very new, um, but, friend from way back in the day, you know? Uh, and it reminded me like all the things that you have to teach somebody, um, which it was a good experience for me and he was doing his best. So it's all good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, You have those days and, um, and, and, and you just do it like you're investing in people. And, um, one day they'll hopefully invest in someone else. So it all comes around. Absolutely. Um, we're going to head into Spiro Q and A. It's the faster paced round on our way out. Dan, are you ready? I hope so. What is your single best spearfishing tip? I wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> single best spearfishing tip: slow down. Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, the the spearfishing experience is really, I think I already kind of talked about this, but it's a chance to like, I recharge, I recenter, like, you know, kind of hit the reset button, which is really nice. Sorry. That was more than one sentence. That's fine. It's good. It's all good stuff. It's just the purpose of the question is just to get people to try and compress what it is and express exactly what, what it means to them. So um, who's been the most influential personal people in your spearfishing? I would say my immediate community, you know, my dive buddies, um, have the biggest influence on me and my diving. You want to name names? Um, yeah, I mean, Dan Flood's been helping out forever. Talia, of course. Um, we've got on the, the free diving side, absolutely. Chris Bustad was one of my, well, pretty much my instructor all the way up. Um, we got Kurt Grote and Jeff Garwood, um, all right. super solid dudes that I love hitting the water with. Sick. Um, last question. If you could go anywhere in the world to go spearfishing tomorrow, where would you go? Tomorrow? Um, you know, I think the next two that are the most realistic one that I'm looking for in the near future-ish is I'd love to go back to South Africa and actually get to spear because um, we didn't do any spearing while we were there. So I think that would be great. And then we've got a buddy um, that 
went back to Australia. I'd love to go to Australia and shoot. So well, when you get here, you're going to have to hit me up, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Where can people come and find you, man? So it's, uh, you got Oregon Freediving Company, yeah? And you're, yep. in, you're in your shop right now. Where, whereabouts is it? Um, it's in Oregon City, which is about 20 minutes south of Portland. Um, so, and you can find us on Instagram, on on the good old Facebook. Um, I think I still have a Twitter. I don't think I use it much. I don't use it. I deleted it. I was, I was just, it's just got terrible in there. It's all hostile. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's Oregon Freediving Company on um, Instagram, isn't it? It's like Oregon underscore. Yeah. Freediving underscore Co or something. Yeah, I think you got it. And what about yeah. online? Can people shop at your store online? Yeah. Now I'm going to tell everybody <laughs> just how terrible I am. So <laughs> when I got into it, I was terribly frustrated that there weren't any shops where I could actually see gear. And yeah. so like for years and even, even now I'm kind of opposed to like online shopping yeah. um, for free dive gear. And so, but with that, I've got a bunch of people that are like, Dan, we want to support your shop. So yeah. you got to make it easier on us. So there is an online store. Yeah. If you don't see what you're looking for, I'm terrible at keeping it up to date and it doesn't even have like half the stuff I actually have. Yeah. So um, feel free to give me a call or an email because I likely have or can get what you're looking for. Yeah, cool. Um, I'm, I encourage people to go and find a, have a local spearfishing retailer too. I think like those relationships you form are, are, are way more valuable than the $5 you might save buying something out of Spain or, or whatever it is, you know, because you're shopping online. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all good. That's my 10 cents. That's my soapbox for the, for the day. <laughs> um, so Oregon freediving, uh, company, uh, you can also book courses with Dan when he gets going, hopefully in the post COVID stuff. Are you still doing courses now? Oh yeah. Yeah. We've right. been slammed. Um, which has been really good. Cool. And you got a bunch of cool people running courses there. So, um, there's heaps of stuff there. So awesome, Dan. Um, magic chatting with you, man. I've wanted to do this for years. I've been calling you Dan Fully Rad, even though it's uh, Dan Sam Rad, because uh, you're just a cool dude, man. Great personality, and uh, and you you're you're always doing. Even your your uh, interactions with the the broader community online are are um, um, cool. I I'm I'm kind of envious of your community there in uh, in Oregon. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and I love our community here. So it's it's fun to be a part of. Cool, man. All right. See you, Dan. All right, thanks. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed Dan's chat with me there. I uh, really enjoyed it. Afterwards, he sent me an email, and sometimes this is, it can be quite common with our guests. They, he says, uh, I kicked myself on some of the answers for not adding more details when telling some of the story, but that's how an interview goes, I guess. The one that actually bothers the most is the advice for Noob Spiro because for some reason I blanked on it. Um, I always tell people to take a free, a free course, a free dive course to learn basic technique and increase their safety and always dive with a trusted buddy. I guess in the moment, uh, you know, I missed it. But anyway, he says, um, another shout out I didn't mention was Ian Alstrom, his first instructor and a real good dive buddy and a great mentor. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed Daniel Samrad. Uh, check it out, Oregon Freediving Company. He's a cool dude. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, where are we off to next is where you're probably asking. 
I've got Lisa Ferry Rafkin. She's in her late 50s. She owns a bunch of women's spearfishing records. And above all, the thing I love most about her, she's just super down to earth and absolutely froths on this underwater spearfishing lifestyle that uh, a lot of us love and enjoy. And she, oh, jeepers, she is just a cool, a cool lady to chat with. I really enjoyed it. Come back, subscribe to the Noob Spirit Podcast as usual. Leave a review wherever you listen to it. If you love the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Noob Spirit. Consider becoming a patron listener and funding some of those trips like this one I'm just headed up to Southern Great Barrier Reef with the Adreno team I'm looking forward to it hopefully when I get back and start chatting with you next time you guys get some of that energy I get from the reef Uh, all good I hope you uh, guys are diving stay safe catch ya In 2001, Adreno was a tiny hole-in-the-wall shop and it was near impossible to get spearfishing equipment in Australia. Without Adreno, many people would never have discovered the joy of spearfishing. To continue their legacy, they've created a highly effective 101 basic spearfishing series for free that you can check out on the Adreno YouTube channel. Adreno may be bigger now, but it's still a company that's focused on helping people discover their spearfishing experience for themselves. Check out the Adreno YouTube channel for plenty of awesome vids to help you on your spearing journey. Are you a US-based diver? Great news. Today's show sponsor, Neptonics.com, have got a deal for you. Use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off anything and everything at Neptonics.com. Equipment you can rely on, solid gear that works. Even when you get all limp biscuit on it, you'll struggle to break stuff.